Uh, we're, we're in a, a series called um, Parables, and this is just a series of simple stories Jesus tells that communicate a profound truth. And we've been looking specifically at some of those stories in Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, all the stories that Jesus is telling has something to do with the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, that's almost every one of them. That's how he introduces the story. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And so we've been learning over the last few weeks that, uh, that people receive uh, the message about the kingdom in different ways. We've learned that uh, right now the kingdom is a different than what people expected, that it's intermingled with people who are not part of the kingdom, and that's to give us an opportunity to rub shoulders and impact other people. Uh, we have found out that the kingdom, it, it will have a small beginning and grow into something great, that God uses little things to make huge impacts. And now we're continuing that today. But about this time, as all these people are listening to these stories that Jesus has told one after another, after another, after another in a setting, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and that's very interesting to the Jewish people because they've been waiting for the Messiah who would be the king to restore power to Israel. And they've been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. And now here comes Jesus. There's rumors that he could be the Messiah. And now he keeps talking about the kingdom of God, and they are dialed in. They want to hear everything about it. But as Jesus is teaching and they start realizing this kingdom is not exactly the way we pictured it now, yet anyway, all that's coming in the future, as they're figuring, that, figuring all that out and learning from Jesus, the natural question for them is to begin wondering, well, okay, if this is the kingdom, it's a little bit different than we thought, at least for now. Well, how do I get in that? How do I become part of that? And that's kind of where we're left off in Matthew chapter 13, where we've been for the last few weeks, and I want to pick it up in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 44. But right before I get there, I have a question for you. How many of you have been following the NFL draft? Anybody? Yeah, it's related to the message anyway. Yeah, I'm just asking. All right, so the last three days. All right, so the Browns had two of the first four picks. So how many of you feel like, hey, this is a game changer. We've got it. Everything's going to be different now. Okay. All right. The faithful. All right, Dave, that's very impressive because you're in front. You don't care who sees. How many of you are a little skeptical? A little skeptical? Okay. Yeah. Because you're a Browns fan. Right. Okay. I, I get you. Well, it, what's interesting about this, the NFL draft, which, which goes along with our message today, is that you have 32 owners and coaches of NFL teams, and they're sifting through hundreds and hundreds of college players, trying to find the one or two or a handful of players that will change their franchise. They're trying to find the franchise player. They're trying to find that player that will become a Pro Bowl Pro Bowl selection, yeah, whatever. You know, that's the guy they're trying to find. You're with me. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And they're all trying to get the same thing. And maybe if Jesus was here teaching about this today, he would use the NFL draft as a story because it's a lot like the stories he told. And maybe you'll figure that out as we go. But anyway, Matthew 
chapter 13, and we're going to start off again. There's seven parables about the kingdom of heaven here. The kingdom of heaven, by the way, represents us knowing and having a relationship with God forever. And so that's key. And here's how it starts in verse 34. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So we get the picture, right? Guy stumbles across treasure buried in a field. He uncovers it, knows it's there. He reburies it. And then he figures out how to buy the field. Now, to anybody, does this sound just a little bit shady? Okay. Sounds a little shady to us, and it's very uncommon to us. But back then, this was a relatively common thing. It's what people knew about. Why? Because back then, they didn't have banks. They didn't have paper currency. And so if you had valuables, you would hide them. And the reason you'd hide them, especially in the area of Palestine or Israel, because this is a, a, an area of the world that was constantly being conquered and reconquered and overrun by invading armies. And so as people would sweep in and, and come in and take over ground, they would take everything you had. So you, would, you wouldn't hide your valuables in the house because that's the first place the raiders would search, or they'd take you captive. So you would find a, a, some, a spot of ground somewhere, go out at night, bury it, remember where that was, and then maybe tell uh, your closest family member or something, and only you and them would know. The problem came in is that if somebody went on a long journey, and back then travel took a lot more time, it's a lot more hazardous, you know, may not come back, or maybe an army swooped in and took people captive, or maybe somebody just died unexpectedly, all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of scenarios where that treasure in the ground is lost. P people don't know where it is. There's nobody left alive or nobody there anymore that knows how to recover that. And so that happened for century after century after century in Palestine. People kept burying their valuables in the ground not an uncommon thing, and people would stumble across those occasionally. Now, the shady part. In Jewish law, it was okay that if you found anything, treasure that's been there a long time or, or something that maybe doesn't look like it's been that, found that long, if you found it, then if you could find the rightful owner, you would return it. Or if you thought there was a rightful owner, you'd make an attempt to return it. But if you found something that you knew was ancient long ago, or there was no way to determine if there was any knowledge or any owner around, it was kind of finder's keepers. Jewish law, finder's keepers, basically. Unless you knew it belonged to somebody else. Roman law, because now Roman law is, is kind of over this area because they've, uh, they're occupying... Palestine at the time, Israel, their law was a little more complex. It was basically the same thing, but if you were an employee and you found something of value, your employer may claim that you were acting as his agent, and so they may have a claim. The owner of the land could make a claim against it, especially if they had any knowledge, which they probably wouldn't. That was the whole point. He buys the field from a guy who doesn't know it's there. And so, the best way to secure it, to make sure there's no other claims against it, would be to buy the field. You know it's there. You know it's valuable. The guy you're buying it from doesn't know it's valuable. You buy it, and then you secure your claim in that way. That, that's the best way for that to happen. Now, by the way, 
Jesus is not teaching here the ethics of what happens when you find a treasure in somebody else's field, right? That's not the point of his story. He's just using a simple story that everybody could connect with of his day to teach a profound truth. And that's what I want us to see. What I want us to see in these, this parable and the next one that's just like it are three truths, profound truths. They're actually timeless truths that we can apply in our life today. And the first one is this, that the kingdom of God is priceless. The kingdom of God is a priceless treasure. And that sounds a little odd to us because we're not used to finding treasure. By the way, has anybody heard of a man named Forrest Finn who in 2010 buried a treasure of about worth about two to ten million dollars in the Rocky Mountains. Anybody familiar with this story? Sometimes they have it on this is a real guy. He's actually an art dealer from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he's a big fan of the mountains. And he he made his fortune by uh, dealing in Indian artifacts and stuff. And rich guy, little eccentric. He decides that when he dies, he actually got cancer in 2008 and decided. When it gets close, I'm going to put a treasure in a box, and I'm going to take it to my favorite spot in the Rocky Mountains, and I'm going to die with my treasure there. And probably it'll be years, decades, maybe 100 years before anybody finds me. But when they find my treasure, they'll also find me. So that was just his idea. And then what happened, though, is he recovered. So he didn't die. So in 2010, he thought, you know, I should go ahead and do this. So Without anybody knowing, he goes to this favorite spot that he has in the mountains that nobody knows about, not even his wife, and he buries his treasure. Hold it. He didn't say buried his treasure. He hid his treasure. You, you got to be careful on how you're saying this. He hid his treasure, and then he wrote a poem that he said contained nine clues to tell you where to find it. And it's buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains north of Santa Fe and south of the Canadian border which is about like five Ohio's, you know, if you want to just put that into perspective. It's like half of Colorado, a quarter of New Mexico, half of Wyoming, half of Montana. There's the big states out there. But anyway, so that's out there. And all kinds of peoples, peoples, all kinds of people are searching for it. Probably not a lot of people in this audience, apparently, but a lot, like 350,000 people have gone searching for this treasure. Four people died last year searching for Forrest Finn's treasure in a 10 by 10 inch box, two to $10 million, old stuff and new stuff. Pretty, and if you, and I only mention this because there's $2 million treasure just waiting for anybody. And he's saying the title's yours. If you find it, it's yours. And so people are all over the place looking for it. And it can get a little addictive because there's this poem that you have to decipher that's supposed to have nine clues in it. Because he didn't tell you what the nine clues are. you got to figure that out in the poem. And you start reading that, and especially if you've been to the Rocky Mountains, you start thinking about what this line could mean and this phrase could mean. And then you start thinking about different places you've been, even though you've only been to one millionth of all the places it could be in the Rocky Mountains. And you start putting things together. It's kind of crazy. And I think it can be addictive because we tend to default to thinking that money is going to solve our problems. That if we had a few million dollars, that, man, my life will be golden. You know, everything's good. I'll be, I'll be living large. But really, if you look at the evidence, that's really not the way it is, right? We see people winning lotteries all the time. And, and, and maybe I don't hear all the stories, but I'm struck at how many people, when they win big, 
Just fast forward their life five years later, and their lives are terrible. Anybody notice this? Like they have zero friends because everybody in their life has probably most of them have tried, and they've become suspicious of everybody. And, you know, they have some mansion somewhere that they can't pay the taxes on that's fallen down. You know, it's just weird. You're just looking at this. We tend to think money will solve our problems, but really money probably brings as many heartbreaks as it heals, I think. And I think you probably agree with me on that. Money can't give peace to a troubled mind, can't forgive a sinful heart. But Jesus here, he's teaching about the value of the kingdom, that the kingdom is priceless like a a treasure beyond our dreams. And then he rapid fire tells another parable just like the first one, and here it goes in the next verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. One pearl. You know, who knew pearls could be so valuable. I remember when I was uh, in high school, I was 15. Of course, a 15-year-old guy, you know, all I'm thinking about is I got to get a car. I got a car and I got to get running before I turn 16. I mean, that was was all that was on my mind. But during this time in my life, I actually took a trip with 180 other students and we went out to California. And in California, we did some stuff. And and while I was out there, I actually found out that one of the girls on the trip kind of liked me. And, uh, and she was really not my type at all, but nobody else liked me. So, you know, hey, that counted for something. <laughs> and, and she was actually a little older than me. And so it was like, okay, yeah, we'll give this a try. And, and while we were out there, we took a bus ride down to San Diego. And so we sat together on the bus down in San Diego. It's like a date. And we went to SeaWorld in San Diego. And once we got to SeaWorld, so now we're kind of like on a date. Uh, we went in our, our entry uh, Entry fee was kind of already paid for, and we're walking around. And as we're walking around, we come to this. There's actually a point to this. Hang with me. We come to this place where they're diving for pearls, and you can buy like an oyster for 20 bucks. And so this gal uh, decides that, hey, this would be a cool thing for us to do. And I'm, I'm a little old school, and I thought, well, yeah, I realized I, I should pay for this because, you know, it's kind of like we're on a date. So I, I get there, and then I realize this is 20 bucks each. And so I'm just like, whoa. And so I, I buy these things, and sure enough, we hand the cups, and you know, they go down, they dive down, and then they come back up, and they hand her a cup with the oyster in it, and they hand me a cup with an oyster in it. And then what you do is you go stand in line, and there's a little kiosk, and they're popping these oysters open, and they get your pearl out, they clean it up, and then they'll even appraise it. And so we're standing in line, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, they're selling these pearls for 20 bucks, and we're going to get it appraised. This really makes no sense to me, but we're standing there. But then as you're standing there, there's a board, and if anybody's pearl appraises at quite a bit more than the $20 you paid, they threw it up on the board. So we're noticing, hey, somebody yesterday got like a $75 pearl. That's pretty cool. So we get up to the front, and, and this young lady hands her oyster to the people. And they pop it open. We've been watching this for five minutes or so, but they take a little more time with her pearl. And then they finally say, we appraise the value of this pearl to be about $300, which by the way, was more than all the money I'd saved up for a car to that point. You know, so it's like, wow, 300. So man, I hand them my oyster. Well, check this out because I bought it at the very same time and they pop that open. They don't spend any time. They're like high, high retail on this, 12 bucks. You know, so nothing. And so then the next day, uh, by, by the way, w- when I bought those pearls, I realized two important life lessons. Number one, 
I didn't have enough money to date. And number two, I needed to break up before supper because I was broke. So that happened. <laughs> but anyway, the next day, we went to Chinatown in San Francisco. And we're in San Francisco, and we're with our own sets of friends now because that's over. And, uh, and I was just trying to figure out what to get to eat because I was starving, which I ended up finally getting a half a chicken in the base of a Chinese restaurant where nobody spoke English. But anyway, she was with some other people, and they were just walking around Chinatown. They went into a jewelry store. And in the jewelry store, they got talking about the pearl, and the per then they appraised her pearl again, and they offered her $1,500 for the pearl that, that I got yesterday for 20 bucks. $1,500. And when I heard that, I'm like, well, that's great. $1,500. And she goes, well, I didn't sell it. And I'm like, why not? You know, what? whatever. So anyway, she didn't sell, but we weren't hanging around that much. But $1,500, you know, who knew pearls? could go for more money to think. In this story that Jesus tells, this pearl is worth way more than that. This guy sells everything he has. He obtains this pearl. And what's Jesus saying is so valuable. He's saying, hey, treasure, a super priceless pearl. What's so priceless? What's so the kingdom of God. And Jesus, by the way, is coming to say, hey, that's available through me. I am offering you the priceless kingdom. But it's exclusively, the only way you can get it is through me. And that's what uh, John 14, 6 is all about, where Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is saying he's the only way. There's not all these different ways to heaven. Jesus says one way, and it's through him. Now, and that's the gospel, by the way, which means good news, that Jesus came to lay down his life for us. And I know a lot of times, especially church people, we that have been in church a long time, we can understand the gospel and we can give our lives to Christ. And then, and we've heard it so many times. You come to church, you hear, you hear quite a bit. And, and then we'll, we'll teach on something. And, and you kind of, we, some of us will have this anticipation of, all right, I understand the gospel. Now I want to get to the good stuff, the deep stuff, the real stuff, the interesting stuff, the the stuff beyond the surface. But anytime we're thinking like that, we've missed something. Because really, there's nothing deeper than the gospel. When we come to realize that we, through our own choice, have sinned against God, when we come to find that out, and we know that that the consequence, the just, correct consequence is separation from God forever, but God still loved us so much that he made a costly, tremendous sacrifice. He allowed his son to come and die on the cross, suffer and die to pay our individual sin penalty so that we can live with him forever. There's nothing deeper. There's nothing more valuable. There, there's nothing more that we can discover than that. So, the first timeless truth that we need to get from these two stories Jesus tells is the kingdom of God is priceless. Okay, that we can see that, very easy to see. Now, the next truth that I want us to get, that as Jesus tells his parables in the first century, and it's the same truth for us as for them, is that if we really receive the kingdom, if we really get it, we will joyfully reprioritize our life. 
If we really understand and receive the kingdom, we will joyfully reprioritize our life. That's actually what happens in both of these parables. I mean, the whole point of both parables, if, that, if you got it, you'll, that Jesus will become a joy-filled priority. And they're talking about, and again, joy is key. And so, notice the guy who finds the treasure. He finds the treasure, and then he doesn't seem to be a man of much means. He's got to liquidate everything to buy this piece of a field to, to have ownership claim, an undisputed claim on this property. He sells everything he has. But notice where the joy comes in. It's not like, joy, I found it. Oh, now, bummer, I got to go sell my car and my flat screen TV and this and that and, the, and what, what I've accumulated in my life. And now, so that's kind of a bummer. But joy again, once I get this, I can buy that stuff back. That's not the picture. The picture is he has joy knowing it's there. He has joy selling his stuff. He has joy making the sacrifice because he knows what he's gaining is of far more value. And so he's filled with joy no matter what's happening, even as he sells all the stuff that he's worked all his life to get, right? That's what he's doing. And the question is, you know, what about us? and joy. Do you ever wonder how much joy that you have in your life? Here's what I think impacts our joy more than anything else. Uh, first of all, it's just busyness because we're really not thinking about it. You know, so, but if we think about it, if we ever stop long enough to think and reflect, I think what sometimes impacts our joy factor is that we have a longing or a yearning for something that we don't have. We might not even know what it is. Now, I, I think we only notice this in a, in a couple of different circumstances in life. First of all, if there's ever been a tragedy, you know, if something happens, like what Joe experienced that flips his, just in an instant, his world, I mean, he goes... Two weeks ago, everything's totally normal, and then his world is flipped upside down. That reprioritizes everything in your life. And so we get that. But I think the only other time that, that you're really tuned into this is when you get unbusy and you get quiet and you slow down and you think. And we very rarely do that. I mean, think about it. when we take a walk, what do we carry with us? You know, our cell phone with things in our ears, and we're texting, and we're doing this. It's like we never stop. But when we do stop and reflect and think and slow down enough to notice, for me, it seems like there is a yearning or a longing in my soul for something and even though I'm not sure exactly what it is. Now, the problem with that is that because of that yearning and that longing, which, which I believe that maybe, maybe God planted that in our heart, and I'll get back to that. When we, we experience that, when we dial into that and know that and experience that longing, we tend to try to fill that with stuff. We tend to 
to try to fill that longing, to answer that longing by acquiring stuff or even relationships. We try to get stuff. And, and then we think that's what it is. Oh, I need this. But if we'd ever slow down enough after we got that, we would realize that that really didn't satisfy. And we still have that same longing and yearning that we started out with. And I think that's because God has planted that in our heart. Our Creator put that in us. And what we're yearning for and longing for can only be found in Him. Nothing else satisfies. Nothing else will, will eliminate, take care of that longing and that yearning that we kind of instinctively feel. Now, Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. And he's saying, hey, the, the world has been broken. It didn't start off that way, right? I mean, with Adam, after creation, he experienced a relationship with God, the presence of God in, in all of its fullness. So can you imagine? Adam in the garden is hanging out. He's walking with God. He's sitting with God. And he doesn't feel like um, that he's out of sync. He doesn't feel like he needs, he, he doesn't beg for forgiveness. Uh, he doesn't wonder if he's maybe has some unconfessed sin and, and you know, that's in the back re recesses of his mind that, that he doesn't even realize he's committed. It, it, it's not that. It's like he is in the presence of God and nothing else matters. And he experiences the fullness of God. And that's really what the kingdom is. The kingdom of God brings wholeness, brings fullness. And so there you have this picture in the garden of Adam and God watching a, a sunrise and just talking about it and, and what that means to them. And of course, all that, even though he has peace in every way, that's all before the fall. And then the fall happened, sin happened because of free will. And all of a sudden, the world is broken, the peace is shattered, everything is messed up. Now there's strife, sin, sickness, and death. And then fast forward, here comes Jesus saying, yeah, there's sickness, death, misery, brokenness, but I've come to bring the kingdom, to restore the kingdom of God. And everybody's tuned in, and Christ teaches about brokenness and grace and redemption and I think we all get in our lives that there's a thousand ways to be broken. But Jesus is telling us there's only one way to be made whole, and that is through our Creator's plan through Jesus Christ. The only way. Are you filled with joy? Jesus brought us a way to have joy. And do you experience that? We experience that when we stop long enough from our busy lives to reflect on the fact that, yeah, we may have longings and yearnings, but ultimately we realize that's implanted by our Creator and that's ultimately God in our life and we'll 
experience the fullness of our relationship with God one day in the future if we've responded to his offer because it's this. Although none of us deserve to be with God or to be forgiven, Jesus has offered that at a costly price. He allowed himself to be tortured and killed to make a way for us to be forgiven. That's the greatest treasure. And when you understand that with joy, you'll reprioritize your life. But back to that first question, the third point is this. How do you get it? Because Jesus is teaching about that too. Okay, if the kingdom of God is like this, it's not what I expected, but it's something that I want, something more valuable than I've ever dreamed. How to get it? And it must be received, accepted. It must be acted on. You have to, you have to take possession of it. In both parables, the story centers around a single individual who sacrifices all that he has in order to personally obtain that which he knows is priceless. A few months after we returned from California, and uh, that girl contacted me, and uh, she said, hey, I'd like to tell you something. She goes, when I got back, I took that pearl to a, a jeweler in town. Now we're in Colorado. And she says, and they offered me over $3,000. Just like, you got to be kidding me. And I'm thinking, sell that thing, you know, go, go, go get some. And she's like, no, I think, I think I'm going to make it into a piece of jewelry. You know, I'm just thinking, okay, you know, because that's not my treasure. That's her treasure. My treasure was a 1963 scout <laughs> that I found covered in weeds that didn't run, that I pulled out and gave a guy 300 bucks for and drug it home with a year to spare before I turned, the day I turned 16 when I planned to drive that thing. And with my dad's instruction, I was able to get that thing running. And the day I turned 16, I drove that thing all over. And for the next couple years, I, because it was four-wheel drive, I drove that thing all over the Rocky Mountains. And I would drive up as high as I could get on a two-tire path. And I would camp there and then I would pick out the highest peak around me, and the next morning I would climb it. And I've never, ever been able to stand on a mountain without thinking about God. Never. What's your treasure? What brings you joy? Because if you don't have that deep, abiding joy, it could be that You've been so busy, you just haven't stopped to think about it. But it could be that you've never really experienced the kingdom of God. An expensive pearl, that's a pretty nice asset. It would have been for me as a teenager anyway. A two to ten million dollar treasure in the Rockies, that'd be nice to find. But God's given me and probably most of you, something of far, far greater value. He's given us something that actually becomes part of us, is actually in us. 
something that no matter where we go, it can't be robbed or taken from us. Somewhere that I've experienced, whether I was in Siberia or Nepal or Africa or the Orient or the Himalayas or the Rocky Mountains or Green Springs, Ohio. He is always there. You could never lose him. He's forever because his strength keeps us in relationship. And it's a free gift that Christ offers anyone who will just believe, who will just trust him. And so the question is, have, have you done that? That's the most important question in life. Have you received the treasure that Jesus has laid at your feet right before you? Have you received it? Have you made a claim? Have you taken up ownership of what God is offering? Have you done that? It's the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. And don't get so busy and distracted in life that you think maybe you have that, but you really don't experience joy and maybe you've missed the kingdom. Don't risk it. It's there for the taking. He invites you to have it simply through faith. And, and that just means this in a nutshell. God created us, and he created us to have a relationship with him. But he didn't force it. That wouldn't be a real relationship. He, he allowed us to choose. He gave us the freedom of choice, and we've all used that freedom to go our own way and do our own thing which involves sinning against God. We've all rebelled against God, every one of us. I have, you have, we all have. And there's, in God's universe, actually there's justice, and there will be perfect justice coming, but justice demands that our sin, our rebellion against who made us, our creator, has to be punished. And that's separation from God forever. But because God relentlessly loves you, he made another way, and he allowed his only son, Jesus, to come to suffer and die on the cross voluntarily to pay our sin penalty. And Jesus is the only one qualified to do it because he's the only one who didn't have his own sin to pay for. And the way we get that treasure to make it ours is simply by trusting in Jesus, who he is, and what he did for us. And when we do that, we invite God into our life, and nothing can ever take him away. And so before we close the service, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to that before we move on. So right now, I'd like everyone's head to be bowed. And I'm just going to give you a moment that you could be not distracted, that you could slow down your life and your heartbeat and think about where you stand with God. And if you're experiencing the joy of his salvation, and if you have any question about whether the kingdom of God is real in your life, whether you really have a relationship with Christ, whether you've really received the treasure that you know he's offering, if you have any doubt, then I invite you to just express your faith to God in a simple prayer that I'll lead you in. You don't have to say it out loud. God knows your every thought. You just have to make sure it's sincere, and only you and God would know that. Right now, with heads bowed, between you and God, express something like this if you're not sure you ever have. 
Father God, I, I, I understand that I've sinned against you and that because of that, uh, that I'm separated from you forever because you're holy and righteous. But God, I also understand that you not only created me, you not only told me what was right in your law, but, but none of us could do it. You provided, because you relentlessly love, you provided a way by allowing your son Jesus to die on the cross. And right now, Lord, I'm putting my trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. I'm putting my trust in Jesus alone as a way of embracing the kingdom. And God, I thank you for that gift. And by the way, God, I invite you by way of your Holy Spirit to come into my life and help me to live my life with new priority that I would put you first. God, thanks for loving me. In Christ's name. I'd like to keep our heads bowed for just a moment. And if you prayed that prayer, I would like to know it so that I can pray for you. But I don't want, some people are kind of private, so I don't want to violate your privacy. But I'd ask you to do this. With our heads bowed, I would just like you to, to raise your hand. Look at me. Let me make eye contact with you. Put your hand down. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. But just as a way for saying, hey, Kevin, I prayed that prayer as far as I know, sincerely for the first time. Pray for me. Not that you need my prayers. You don't. You have God in your life. I see you right back there. Just put it up where I can see you. There, 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 there. I see you. Yeah. Just let me kind of make eye contact with you. Just put it up. I see you. Thanks. And then right back down after I see you. I see you both right back there. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else that I missed? Uh, just as a way of saying, hey, just uh, just an acknowledgement. I see you right there. Of what, how God's touched your heart, how God's drawn you to him. Father God, we thank you for, for these uh, around our, our auditorium who have done what so many of us have already done, that recognize that we've sinned against you and recognize you offer forgiveness through faith in your son. We've taken you up on that. We've received it. And we know even doing that is only because you let us do it. Lord, thank you. Lord, thanks for loving us so completely. Lord, thanks for helping us to see that salvation is only in your name, actually in the name of your Son. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together now. Our treasure, our spiritual treasure, the kingdom of heaven, relationship with God is found in one name, in the name of Jesus.